Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Now, in this episode, I wanted to cover a little bit of history and I wanted to look at the economics of the Soviet Union. But actually, the reason I want to do that is not so much just about covering the history of it, even though that is really interesting in itself. Economic history, when it's done correctly anyway, is a study of the incentives and looking at the people who were in that position, why they made the decisions that they did. So it would be very easy to assume that the Soviet Union is um, something that we don't particularly need to worry about anymore. But actually, when you start to get into why the individuals who were in that situation made the, re made the decisions that they did, it's actually quite informative about a whole aspect of our modern world, about why people are choosing to act in the way that they are, not just in the public sector, which would be the obvious comparisons with the Soviet system, but actually there's a, there's a lot of crossover, I think, with what we're seeing in tech and government and response to debt at the moment. So we're going to cover all of that and we're going to draw some comparisons. But in this particular occasion, I am absolutely to be delighted to be joined by Josh. Hello. Now, Josh is here today because Josh knows an awful lot about the Soviet Union. Indeed, I do. In fact, I am a, a bit of a, a fan of Soviet history more generally, and I know um, a ridiculous amount of it. Not, not only that, but I feel like the, the discussion of decision-making and incentives also lends itself quite well to my background because that's what I specialised in. When I uh, did my master's degree, um, I specialised in the area of um, behavioural economics and particularly mm -hmm. decision-making. And so... Fantastic. And this is your your first time on Brookonomics as well, isn't it? It is so, indeed. So thank you very much for having me. No, uh, absolutely. You've been on my show before, so I yes. feel like it's it's about time. Right? Really glad to have you on. So so this will be a good one. Let's frame this. Um, in the 1920s, the Western economy, the broader world, um, was booming. It was it was doing incredibly well. But then the, the market crash of 1929, which I've talked about on Bo's epochs, by the way, um, we then saw the, the Great Depression, and there was these major contractions in um, outputs, um, incomes, you know, workforce, all of these things. And actually, during this 1930s period, the Soviet economy was, was thriving. Um, it was largely cut off from Western trade and Western banking systems. Um, yet in the early 1930s, it increased industrial output by about 50%. It maintained basically 0% unemployment. And you can see from that why in the 1930s and onwards, the Soviet system had so many um, Western supporters. So many people were looking at this from the top down level and saying, you know, this system is thriving while we are declining. Um, you know, the West is offering you high unemployment um, contraction. The USSR is offering full employment and expansion. You can see why people started to flop, uh, flock to this. What, of course, we saw after that was 40 years of the USSR in some growth, but ultimately that crapped out, low productivity, um, agricultural nightmare that went along with it. Um, but nevertheless, it did manage to get itself where, to the point where it defeated fascism in Europe. So, oh, and, and also, of course, it, it put the first man in orbit. Yeah, Yuri um, Gagarin. Yeah, yeah, quite. So there is something to be learned from this. Um, and we, we, we dig into it. I mean, what, what is it that first attracted you to, to looking at this, Josh? Um, well, it was actually um, something I covered when I was still at school. Um, I, I studied A-level history and I, I really got into it and I actually carried on um, my study beyond just passing my, my grades. And uh, mm. 
I find it very, very interesting because, as, as many people outline, it was an experiment, first and foremost. It was an experiment mm. in applied Marxism. And, and it, I, it looked like it was working for a long time. It did, yes. And I think that there, there are many reasons which I, I don't necessarily want to get into now. But um, there, there are... We will shortly. Yeah, there, there are aspects of simply the area in which they controlled in that they weren't plugged into, say, the, the Wall Street financial system. Yes. Of course, because they were inherently isolationist economically, they wanted self-sufficiency. And they were certainly situated in the right country for it because, of course, um, the USSR and um, Russia and its sort of satellite states have abundant natural resources. So they could well have done so. It's not, say, a North Korea situation whereby they're starved of natural resources, although yes. they're doing a sort of comparable... I mean, they've got everything, thing. haven't they? I mean, they've got um, abundant um, farming land. Um, as, as long as you don't mind fairly starchy foods, you know, you, you're going to be fairly low on your citrus fruits, but you've got, you've got abundant starchy foods. Um, you've got all the energy you could ever want. And something like as, as much by way of um, commodities as the rest of the world put together. I mean, it is an extraordinarily abundant place. Mm. On paper, you know, if this was a game of civilizations, you'd want to start in Russia. Yes. Well, it's, it's one of those places where um, the, its main asset and its main uh, sort of fault, if you will, mm. is its size, in, in that its size, it can encompass... All of these natural resources that are very helpful if you're looking to industrialize as the Soviet mm. Union did. However, the difficulty, of course, is the developing the infrastructure to do all of that efficiently. And this is mm. a recurring theme throughout um, Soviet history, is this desire to get yes, that infrastructure. But then of course the US they managed to develop out the and the US is not as large as Russia. No. But nevertheless, they did manage to build out the infrastructure and get a, a functional economy. And, and, you know, they became the, the dominant um, global superpower over Russia. Mm -hmm. So these, these are challenges, but they are, they, they are um, not insurmountable. Certainly, yes. So let's start our journey on this one, um, going back to a point that I often talk about in Brokenomics, which is the 14th century. I come back to that because it, it really was a turning point. It was a time when we moved over from a largely agrarian-based society and, and economy, where the feudal lord and the bishop were dominant, um, to moving over to towns and cities, the transition to um, guilds, and artisans and crafts, which then engendered a new political system that were built off those power structures that were emergent in it. And I've touched upon that in the past in Brokeonomics. The reason why that's also a significant jumping off point here is because the, the the Russian economy went the other way at this junction point. So the the real the real crunch prior to that would have been the bubonic plague. It would have been the Black Death. Now in the um, in the Western system, the effect of the Black Death was to um, reduce the number of workers, which made workers a more valuable commodity. Which meant that um, the most that workers were were, were um, valued, and you would want to attract them to you. And then, while you're sort of attracting them to you, you're also keeping an eye on who are the most productive, who are giving you the better yields, the better outputs, and you're going to get this differentiation in pay. That's going to allow um, um, capital accumulation to trickle down. That's going to allow innovation. Um, and when you have the occasional bright spark, who can come up with 
some sensible new way of doing things. You've already got the capital structure and the system in place in order to reward that. Russia um, remained dominant by its feudal system, by its, its serfdom, where it's essentially an extractive system where everything was sucked up um, from, the, from the serf funneled up as much as possible to the um, um, to, 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 to the Lord. Um, how much have you looked at the the surf, the surf system that sort of predated the Soviet Union? Have you, have you dug into that? Um, a great deal, yes. Okay. So um, I, I, I've kind of looked in detail at sort of the reign of Alexander II through to the third and then Tsar Nicholas II, mm. who was the one deposed by the, the, the February revolution of 1917 of course the bolshevik one came later in november and if these are i believe the the julian calendar dates because the russians still used a slightly different yeah. calendar i think that that one comes from of course it gets its name from julius caesar mm-hmm. who um, commissioned someone to come up with it in 46 bc so uh, if you want a sort of benchmark for backwardness of course the rest of europe had adopted the the modern calendar. I think that's the the Gregorian one, is it? Yes. Is it not? Yeah. And so that's um, a, a good example to illustrate the the division because throughout Russian history, um, you have um, a sort of point of dividing how the different czars ruled based on how close or far away they wanted to be from Europe. It, quite often, the Golden Ages were integrating with Europe and on a sort of technological parity to some degree, quite often they were behind, but whereas um, many others had a view of an isolationist Russia that sometimes even uh, ventured more Because of its size, and it it has the option of going down the isolationist route. So the the effect I started describing there about how they never moved away from feudalism, Mm. and actually after the Black Death it started to get worse, not better, because, and again it's a size issue that you point out, whereas... um, Western Europe was much more condensed. Once you had that bubonic plague and you had that shortage of workers, it was easier for one family to move to another and so on, mm-hmm. and, to, to um, move from different lords' lands. Whereas Russia was much more spread out and it was significantly harder to sort of pack up and move to the next lord over because you're, you're dealing with a significantly increased journey and they were willing to be more brutal. And the upshot of all of this is that actually they didn't have an improvement on the feudal serf system up to the point where our story really starts to begin, which is going to be, the, as you mentioned, the Tsar Nicholas II. So, I mean, anything you can tell us about the sort of backwardness of the Russian economy before the Soviets even emerged? Yes, so um, the, the sort of general principle that governed a lot of Russian farming um, pre um, reforms. The the main reform is the emancipation of the serfs in 1861 under Alexander II, who was known as a bit of a liberal reformer. He was one of those cases whereby he um, was a bit more connected to to Europe and uh, he was eventually assassinated. And so his his son and successor, Alexander III, was seen as a bit more reactionary, I suppose. He repealed a lot of the liberal reforms because he had a, a perception that, well, if if we've tried to, you know, throw you a bone and you repay us by assassinating your czar, well, I'm not going to do that. Instead, we're going to clamp down on these these sorts. So that's interesting because that is a theme that keeps coming up, is that the, the Russian leaders, be the Soviet czarist or whatever else, mm. they're incredibly reluctant to give away any power to those... Particularly Nicholas II, under- yes, because he, he kind of modelled himself... Um, 
on his father, Alexander III. Um, and he, again, carried on the, the torch of being a bit more autocratic and holding a bit more ultimate power. And of course, at the time, um, in the rest of Europe, which of course the Russian people were well aware of, particularly the aristocrats that um, helped run the, the Russian Empire, um, the, the, the time of absolute um, rule by a, a monarchical figure seemingly was on, by the wayside. It, it wasn't so much of a thing in, in Europe at the time. Do, do you recall what sort of reforms Alexander I brought in? Uh, Alexander II. Alexander II. So the, the emancipation, I'll, I'll go into detail about that one yeah, first and foremost. Um, so when it comes to the serfs, of course, they were bound to their, their feudal lord. Mm. And so um, they were reliant on him, it is always a him, uh, to portion them a certain amount of land and then they would pay a tribute to the lord for a form of rent, if you will. My understanding of this is they could tend their own land for a certain number of days to basically sustain themselves, and then a, a large then, portion of the week was given over to working the Lord's land. Yes. Right. So it wasn't necessarily even a, a currency-based system. They would they would hand over the food to yes. the Lord, who would then potentially sell it on if he didn't need it. But also, um, it was a, a form of indentured servitude in that they were bound to the land in which um, the feudal lord occupied. They needed to ask for the lord's permission to leave, and therefore mm. um, that eliminates any potential competition, doesn't it? Because, of course, you use the example of um, continental Europe, and, of course, there are lots of individual states, and, and there's lots of competition equivalent to um, the same amount of land mass in Russia, of course, being one country compared yes. to the rest of Europe, where they could potentially move, of course, language barriers would have been more significant in the past as well. Well, of course, I mean, there, there was that attempt to control people in Western Europe as well. So, mm -hmm. so let's just take the British example. When you had that sort of um, late 14th century period and then you started to have that um, you know, new economic system start to emerge, the ruling class did start to push back. And there were laws that, that came along then that said that, you know, it was illegal to leave your land, the land of your lord. You need to stay on that and you can't move away from it. Um, we then had the Peasants' Revolt, which um, failed because they, 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 they didn't follow themselves. They, they didn't follow it through to its ultimate conclusion, but it, it clearly rattled the ruling class. And after that, that the rules around being tied to land were never enforced again. Mm. Um, but... Again, again, this is a sort of question of scale, isn't it? Because in, in a country like England, you can get enough people together and march on London and march on the king. Um, try doing that in Russia. Yeah, and I think that that, again, is the, the size working against them. Because if you want to build a network of, say, dissidents in such a massive country pre-internet, um, I mean, even uh, at the time, telegrams, that sort of thing, were rare, so you kind of had to rely on the postal service, and of course, that wasn't always reliable. Particularly if you're trying to to communicate in, say, a Russian winter, well, that significantly slows the amount of progress mm. that could be made because it will be rail, if you're lucky, horse mm. potentially. So just just tease out a bit about the transition from Alexander II to Alexander III, because again, this this comparison in my mind with the peasants' revolt, because the peasants started to get greater control um, after the plague. These new laws, which I then talked about 
basically snatched it back and that triggered a peasant's revolt and then that sort of effectively broke the system. It sounds like a very similar thing happened in Russia, but um, you know they, they started to get some freedoms. These were sort of more arbitrarily granted mm-hmm. by Alexander II rather than, than won through the process Well, I think he could see the writing on the wall because I think um, my reading of history is that had um, Alexander III and Tsar Nicholas II followed um, in uh, Tsar Alexander II's footsteps and mm. carried on with his reforms, I don't think the, the, the Re- Russian Revolution would have happened. Because essentially it's the same notes playing out in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. It's just that one way you know, the elites decided to roll with it and let these new economic habits emerge, which turned out to be absolutely fantastic for them because it allowed the capital formation, which then allowed the Industrial Revolution and everything that happened with it. The Russians were also faced with the same decision and initially went with it, but then obviously turned against it and decided they, they decided that their will to hold on to the world that they knew was stronger and they were willing to be as brutal as necessary in order to keep the world in the, in the old format. Of course, um, the, the emancipation of the serfs wasn't particularly popular with the aristocrats as well. Mm. And the Tsars, of course, wished to maintain their um, absolute mm. power. I mean, absolute is you know, a bit of a strong term, but it was relatively close. And so they recognised that they needed to also placate the aristocrats as well. And by taking something away from the aristocrats, as in their power to to control the serfs, then it, it created discontent amongst them. So it was a kind of balancing act that was very difficult. And yes. it makes sense that even amongst you know a paternal line, there are discrepancies amongst how to solve that problem. It wasn't an easy one. I certainly don't envy their position because they were, at, at the time of these czars, um, industrially very backwards relative to Europe. Well, that's the thing. So all the decisions being made at a level above the point at which the work is actually being done. So the the Russian lord, I'm sure, would have a decent understanding of the way the farming system works. Yes. But the farming system as it is, he's not there on the coal face, or the, the carrot face, whatever you want to call it, seeing the inefficiencies up front. So in the Western system, as the power got basically pushed down and down and down to the, to, to the lowest levels where the decisions were actually made, and you started to have a noble class that was more, um, you know, a step removed, <coughs> a Western farmer would have seen an inefficiency, and a certain small proportion of them would have experimented with some sort of innovation to, to modernise the technique. Mm-hmm. what they applied whereas the the russian system because it's all being extracted up to the top there's not and 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 because you're the the guy at the at the front line at the uh, the, uh, the current face as i'm calling it doesn't get the benefits of any excess production the innovation simply doesn't take place yes so my understanding is that russia went into you know the with the start of our story the the, the czar nicholas ii bit with essentially 14th century farming techniques? I think that's, that's fair to say. Um, I've actually got a, a fair bit, bit to add on to that. So the, the method that the, the Russians relied on was known as, as strip farming, which was okay. the sort of medieval method of, of farming whereby these, these plots of land were allocated to peasants to, to till and, and harvest. Mm. And 
the problem with that is that they had these smaller plots of land which weren't necessarily always practical and they're also because of the size of the plots of land mechanization was impractical so whereas in sort of western europe you you start seeing some, some mechanization more efficient farming techniques and methods um, becoming pretty widespread in russia because of the the distribution of how the land had been allocated by the the feudal lords they could only rely on more primitive techniques because of the yes. the the amount of land they had and that is inherently inefficient because it's of course the economies of, of scale argument that so, so this is similar to again Britain pre-enclosures um, where I mean I'd, I'd imagine this is the system as well where you basically have um, the land divided up into strips mm-hmm. the Lord will um, draw lots and allocate those strips yes. out to peasants and so you might find you've got you know that strip near your house that one over there and that one all the way over there on the other side of the village and you'd have to spend your time going between them because there were strips there was quite impractical for use and we went through the process um, post um, post plague and, and the sort of new economy that started to emerge we're saying okay what we're just going to do is we're just going to enclose build hedgerows around it and that's why British countryside looks the way it does uh, we're just going to bring the land together and that's your bit and then you can build your house right next to it and it just allows so much more efficiency but also you've got a vested stake in that bit of land and your your taxing structure has changed from being you know working the lord's lands or the, or the number of strips that, that work for the lord to um you know just cough up a bit of coinage it's also worth mentioning here as well that um in the sort of russian empire situation their land wasn't necessarily on their doorstep either. They lived in a, a village that might, may not necessarily have the land next to it. Sometimes they might have to travel a little bit of, of distance to get to the Lord's land that has been allocated to them, which is obviously inherently inefficient compared to that English right. model that you mentioned. But, so you, um, you might be spending a quarter of your day getting there, a quarter of the day getting back. and Perhaps not quite much as yeah. that, but certainly... Well, the, I can well imagine. I mean, it, pre, it's possible, yeah. Pre any sort of modern transportation... You know, if, yeah. if it takes you if it takes you three hours to get there, and I, I can't imagine a, a Russian lord balking at the idea of telling somebody they need to walk three hours in the morning. No, but mm-hmm. but um, I'm going to bring up something that might seem a bit left of field at first. But have you read um, War and Peace by Tolstoy before? No, I haven't. But there was a very interesting part. Um, it's not really the main focus of the story, but it was a contextual thing that I noticed. And um, of course, it follows um, courtesans and aristocratic intrigue and things like that but there's lots of mention of continental Europe aristocrats going there and it's got it has a sort of um, at least to some of the characters in the story some sort of um, appeal to them and of course it's worth mentioning as well that aristocrats weren't confined by the same limitations Mm. that the, the peasant classes were and so they were able to travel around and can go on a, a nice jolly through Europe, and sort of. As Although I'm sure there would have been lots of socialising with the upper crust of, of yes, Western Europe. But yes. the important thing here is that they went around Europe and saw firsthand the innovations that were going on there. And so it's not mm. so com- it's not so simple as to say the aristocrats wanted to just continue the the feudal system because some of them had seen the benefits that Europe had um, brought about from abandoning it. And oh, so okay. there, there was a bit of a, a sort of um, schism amongst some of the aristocrats. It's not necessarily 50-50 or anything like that. But there, um, particularly uh, in War and Peace, there are some characters that are and, more isolationist. And this isolationist. is some of the tensions that come up in, in Dovskyevsky around the, um, the, the the different tendencies, as you might call them. Pol- political I haven't read any um, 
Dostoevsky, but um, also uh, Tolstoy, yes. Yeah. Well, but both of them, yes. Mm-hmm. That that tension in the in the ruling class. Yes, and I think that they they each had a kind of conflicting vision of which way to go. Some of them were were kind of. Uh, quite focused upon remaining in the same manner in which their their ancestors had practiced because they recognized that they could be self-sufficient. They didn't necessarily need to rely on Europe and perhaps they were even competitors not to be emulated, potential um, conquests in the future. And others saw it as, well, you know, look at the nature of their economies. They're going to get ahead of us. We've got to get in on this before we're left behind. And that's perhaps a similar thing to what the uh, Japanese inevitably settled on um, to try and industrialize to I keep see. up with the West. So you, you get these tensions brewing, but they never really come to a head because they're not forced. So even though there are those advocating for some change and maybe implementing some change on their own land to a limited extent, yes, it had never come to the, the, the crunch point that it had in Western Europe. Um, and you still basically had an extractive economic system as opposed to a bottom-up um, yes. financial system that you had in the West. And, and the reason why that was so powerful in the West is because, of course, once you start giving people the ability to work their own land and, and trade land, um, basically you, you end up over a period of time with the land going to the most productive, efficient users because small incremental gains in um, capital accumulation accumulate over time. It pushes you down the route of... Um, you know, ca- capital expansion and, uh, and and also sort of retained earnings that then can be deployed into other things. You know, your third son can go off and learn uh, because he, he's not going to inherit much by the way of land. He can learn an, a, a craft um, that then pushes him into the, into towns later as an artisan, as you know, a candle maker or, or whatever it is that you know craft that he has picked up, and you get this transition naturally into a more industrial town city based economy which lends itself very much, and you can see why the Industrial Revolution happened as a natural consequence. And the other thing that I actually find very interesting about the period as well is because of this, uh, this, this effect of a, basically a new money class coming through, again, that was meritocratic, and you then started to see political change in Western countries where effectively the old, the old order was assumed, not quickly, but, you know, the, the feudal lord and the bishop were everything at the end of the 14th century. And we still have them today. We still have the House of Lords. We still have the bishops rolling around. But, they're, I mean, they're just completely irrelevant. I mean... Well, they, they do still hold, I think it's 26 seats, the Lord Spiritual in the House of Lords, which mm. are um, non-elected seats. Yeah. So they, they still have some power, but it's a lot um, less than it yeah. used to be. Oh, and, and the laws around. I mean, I, I, I had one finance job where the, the guy sat next to me literally grew up in a castle. So, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're still around, but they're not. Uh, but but he couldn't have had my hands cut off if if we if we had had a falling out. Um, well, maybe he could, but it, but it would have been through um, through the, through a diversity hire in, in London or something. But so you know, the the, the, the power shift had changed, and you then get that um, transition to a Western economic model, which is based on a whole multitude of competing elites all sort of drawing their money up through this system and invested in um, continued improvement and innovation and so on. I think focusing on economic efficiency Mm. promotes meritocracy really, doesn't Mm. it? In that 
um, social mobility was improved by the agricultural efficiencies um, of the, the agricultural reforms that we conducted. And so this allowed greater um, efficiencies in, in the production. And so they could build, as you said, surpluses that then allowed and facilitated industrialization. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are, are clearly good from an economic sense. Mm. And um, yeah, this simply just wasn't going on at, at the time of the czars um, to nearly the same extent. So this, this draws me to my first comparison to modern day, which I, I think I'm going to go to the, um, to the EU. Uh, you know, some people have called it the, um, the EU SSR. Um, it's actually not. It's, it's actually not a completely unfounded um, um, discomparison, because as we talked about, the the Russian leadership were, were uncomfortable with change overall. I mean, there was one or two who who saw some benefits of it, but essentially, they understood what they had, they liked what they had, and they didn't want to see it change, and so they were very hostile to this change coming through. Very similar to the EU today, which. Um, basically tries to regulate out of existence any new economic model that comes along. So an obvious example would be something like Uber. You know, when that arrived, they basically regulated it out of existence in a whole number of, of, of sections of, of the EU because, you know, they had the established taxi model that they were comfortable with and they all understood and they were not going to let this new thing come along. And you might agree or, or, or disagree on that particular example, but it's, it's absolutely as every aspect of the EU is is the regulation out of existence of anything of anything new mm -hmm. so this um this incentive structure this tendency amongst people was not necessarily you know something that is just a uh, a passage of history from russia it is an, an innate behavioral aspect do you, do you have any thoughts on the behavioral aspects of of, the, of this sure i think that innovation is a sort of state of nature for human beings we've always come up mm. with new technology um be it you know the the bow 70,000 years ago, all the way to um, high explosive artillery mm. in a relatively short space of time. And I think that actually this is a, an inclination that is suppressed by government because, of course, the, the ability to enact your innovations, be they sort of a business model, uh, an economic model, a new industry, a new technology, all of these things have so much red tape now that it's impossible to, to navigate these things without a significant legal department. And that puts the, yes. the cost of innovation as, as being far, far higher than it need be. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.